Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to teach a class, uh, write his dissertation, and then improbably to find an actual job. So last week we looked at the Industrial Revolution from a bird's eye view. We looked at different kinds of explanations for why it happened in Britain and when it happened in Britain. And from looking at those different explanations, we reviewed a bunch of different ideas about what the Industrial Revolution actually is. Now, the Industrial Revolution, if you ask me, is probably one of the more important things that has happened in world history. It changed the way that everybody on Earth made and consumed things. It represented a change from the old kind of organic economy based basically on getting energy from sunlight and using it to do work to a new kind of economy, a fossil fuel economy, where a lot of the energy that we get to do things comes from fossilized sunlight through sources like coal and peat and oil and, and, and various other minerals. And that's not just a British story. It starts in Britain. So when we discuss why it happened, we have to begin looking first at this weird island off the coast of Eurasia that had really accessible coal resources. But it did not end in Britain. This week, we're going to look at the cultural consequences of the Industrial Revolution on work. So we're going to do that through a really simple question. Was this massive change in how people made and consumed objects, was that change good? Was it good for the workers? Now, before we get into that big question, let's just take a moment to think of how work was changed after the Industrial Revolution. So throughout the 19th century, all over the world, these changes to production were changing the way that people spent their working lives. Now, the most obvious aspect of this were the factories. Now, what does it mean to work in a factory? You know what that is in your head. Maybe you work in a factory. Maybe your parents or grandparents worked in a factory. But no matter what, you know what a factory is. I think there might be even an emoji of a factory. It's a big place, one place with big machines, and those big machines are expensive. And because the one place with big machines was really expensive, the people who owned the big machines needed to keep the factory running all the time in order to get those big machines paid off. So in the factory, this big place with big machines, you have a lot of people working who don't necessarily own the machines themselves. These workers who come into the factory from their homes to work usually get paid in a wage. They work like you and I probably work. They come in, they clock in, they work for a particular amount of hours, then they clock out and they get money, usually based on how long they work, sometimes based on how much they produce. But importantly, usually they do not own the stuff that they use to work. They do not own, in Marx's jargon, 
the means of production. It's important to clarify this in the terms of the Anthropocene. Why do you have these big factories that have such expensive machinery? Well, you have it to harness the power of the cheap energy of coal. You have the massive cotton mills because you can, for the first time, use expensive machinery to access the cheap energy from fossil fuels. So this an equal division of the fruits of people's labor begins because of ways that people figured out to get the cheap energy of coal. But it's important to remember that even though all throughout the 19th century there were lots of factories and it was a really novel way of working, it was only one way of working in a whole gigantic tapestry of ways of working. So even though some sectors of the economy, leading sectors they're called, were really, really big in factory production, these are cotton spinning, metallurgy, uh, some sort of large industrial processes like the making of steel, a lot was still made by hand, even within the leading sectors. For example, some forms of high-quality lace, you know, it just wasn't possible to make them by machine until well into the 19th century. Some kinds of high-quality steel were not made by factory production until far into the 19th century when particular steel-making processes were perfected. But there was a lot of this old kind of craft production still around. And it's also important to remember that there wasn't just a productive sector of the economy. Well, the, the, the biggest sector of the economy remained the primary sector, people making things on the land, people farming, people mining. And in Britain, at least, where I know the story the most, this was still by and large unmechanized. It was improved, and often improved by ways that harness cheap energy, like uh, uh, making new sources of fertilizer that, that, that allowed us to get at the, the nitrogen in the air a lot, a lot easier, like, like uh, Guano Islands. But still, it was done mostly by hand, the same way that it had been done for thousands of years before. And it's important to remember that working isn't just a male thing. You know, if you had an image in your mind about the people who were working in these different spaces of labor that I had been talking about, factories, craft workshops, farms, and, and even mines, it's likely that the faces that you had in your head were all male. That's not the case. Women worked. Having women not work was a luxury that most people could not afford. And continuing in the 19th century, the largest single employment in all of Great Britain 
during the heyday of the Industrial Revolution is domestic service, which is by and large a female job. The largest single job in Britain were women working in the homes of other people. What did they do? They drew water, they cooked food, they cleaned houses, they cleaned clothes, they took out the trash and poop, they cared for the children. And the Industrial Revolution, while it changes a lot of the everyday life, it does not change how domestic servants worked. And there were women deeply involved in all of the other sectors of the economy that I was, I, I was discussing. Factory work was not always, not usually, done by adult males. Very often it was done by children because factory work often was unskilled and you know you needed the small deft hands of children and I mean you didn't have compulsory schooling so what were the little kids going to do anyway? And a lot of time the people who were working were women. Up north for instance in, in, in the Midlands it was very common to have men and women working alongside one another in the cotton factories. Sometimes they'd even hang out and have fun and like sing songs and you know have an actual community sort of spirit. Sometimes you'd have whole families working together in the factory. So the factory, that early sector of the modern wage economy was not just male, it was male and female, young and old. And finally, we have to think not just about, you know, factories and making stuff. In the 19th century, you get these novel places of labor that are really familiar to us. The 19th century worldwide is the rise of the office. This is where you get the beginning of large bureaucracies that need the kind of dedicated professional paperworking staff that worked in an office. This is where you get people finally coming into the office at nine and leaving to five and at five and doing paperwork and you know having a professional track of of, of education and achievements that set them down a particular uh, uh, educated profession like lawyering or 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 civil engineering. And this is new. This is, this is a novel form of work for most people. Of course, there were offices before the 19th century, but they didn't become a major way of working until the 19th century. And it's funny, if you look at the stress, if you could kind of calculate the stress that people had around their work, you'd, you'd, you'd notice something funny in the 19th century. At the beginning of the 19th century, people who worked in factories were probably, if we could guess, a lot more stressed than people who worked in offices. You know, they didn't have many protections. They worked really long hours, even if they got paid more. Uh, they would often be working in bad conditions and get their hands smushed. Whereas people in offices in the 19th century were probably like bankers today. You know, they'd waltz in at 10 or 11, do a little bit of work, have some lunch, and then waltz back out to their townhouses at four or five, kind of not particularly worried. At the end of the 19th century, those roles were reversed because of a strong union movement. A lot of workers in factories got a lot of good protections and were not working for as long hours and in as poor conditions. They had more vacation time. This is the beginning of the package holiday led by the company Thomas Cook that took working class people to the seaside for their mandatory vacation days. And, you know, they, they might have had a little bit of a chiller time. 
Professionals, on the other hand, in the late 19th century, start to get stressed. It's where you see the beginning of these weird kinds of nervous conditions that we now associate with office work, you know, nervous tics, neuroses, people, you know, having bad digestion and dyspepsia. It's the beginning of the phase uh, and fad of tonic waters and various other kinds of pick-me-ups like Coke that were meant to help the nervous office worker, the person paralyzed by their nervous disorders with their nervous dispositions. Why that is, I'm not Sure, I'm not sure why there's this shift in, in anxiety in the professions. No matter, what we should just remember is that this is a vastly complicated movement. In the 19th century, because of the changes of production and consumption based on fossil fuels, a lot of the way that people worked all over the world was changing. Let's get to that question. Was it good? For as long as there has been an Industrial Revolution, people have argued about whether the Industrial Revolution was good for the people who had to work in the Industrial Revolution. Let's think of why that is. On the one end, you get cheaper goods. Cotton factories made cotton cheaper, and cheaper cotton meant that people could choose from an ever-increasing variety of things to wear, which is nice. And consider that material prosperity is affecting all of the places that the Industrial Revolution touched, which is really wide. Not just cotton goods, but metal goods. Not just metal goods, but foods. Not just foods, but glasswares. Not just glasswares, but home heating. Everything is getting cheaper. Material things are beginning to be a lot easier. The world is becoming a lot more of a human-controlled place. Because of the power in fossil fuels, new ports are being opened up. Railways are, 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 are expanding. The world is getting conquered in a way it hadn't before, which is nice. And the rise of the wage economy that people were participating in on a novel scale because of the Industrial Revolution gave people a bit more freedom. There's a big difference in a person working on a farm their whole lives, often not for money, and a person going to work in a factory in a city for money. There's a reason why people in the 19th century were streaming into cities from the countryside. It was because in the cities, even though it was more polluted and dirty and hard sometimes, it was also more free. They got more choice. They got a wider variety of things. They had a wider variety of employers and very often they got paid more, especially if they were women or children who might not otherwise be able to find good remunerative labor. So that's on the good side. Cheaper stuff, a greater command over nature, more freedom, more wages. Let's look at the bad side, the negative side. Well, first, industrial cities to the people who viewed them in the 19th century seem horrifying. People lived in cramped housing, often in damp garrets, uh, you know, seven people to a room. These cities with their coal-smoked uh, 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 f you know, houses and their cold smoke factories were filled with black acrid smoke and with acid 
rain. As I mentioned before, a lot of the people who were working in these new factories were children. You know, it, it, it seems wrong to us to imagine six, seven, eight, nine-year-old kids traipsing off to the factory every morning with their families to work. And the gains from this new economic system, even if the people working in the factories might have gotten a little bit more money, the gains, by and large, were more and more unequally divided. So that's kind of the debate. People have been worrying or wondering what on earth happened to the workers of the Industrial Revolution. This is known in, in, in history as the standard of living debate. And it was a really, really active section of British history in the 20th century. Now, first, there were a bunch of historians who were trying to quantify how well off people were over the course of the Industrial Revolution. And they did this by making aggregate time series databases of purchasing power, asking in essence whether over the course of the Industrial Revolution, workers in the Industrial Revolution were able to buy more stuff. Now, after this, you know, people came up with various numbers. Some people were pessimists. They said that, you know, the aggregate time series data showed that people were able to buy less stuff, that they were more exploited over the course of the Industrial Revolution. Then there were optimists. Um, and the optimists said that actually people on the whole were better off. But the whole terms of the debate changed uh, in the 70s with E.P. Thompson, famously in The Making of the Working Class and in other books, E.P. Thompson stomped on the idea that an aggregate time series uh, data chart of wages could really show whether the standard of living of workers had changed. He said, look, you have to look at the experience of the people who were working to understand whether the standard of living improved. And the experience of the people who worked through the Industrial Revolution was, if you look at the literary sources, at the diaries and the letters and the reports and the first-hand accounts, the experience was awful. And nobody would give up the freedom that they had had for the exploitation of the factory just for a little bit extra wages. Now, more recently, the economic history of the Industrial Revolution has produced more aggregate time series graph of wages, and it suggests that perhaps people weren't better off. The pessimists have, by and large, won. We generally agree in the profession that over the course of the Industrial Revolution, people got paid a little bit less. They had a little bit less buying power. At the same time, as things were getting cheaper, and a large group of non-workers, the people who owned the factories, were getting much, much richer. But wait, remember that there are a number of different industrial revolutions, a number of different ways that we can characterize the modern world, the modern world of work, and that one of the big changes that we've been noticing in our understanding is that the industrial revolution was not a sudden explosion. It was instead a slow accretion of new ways of working. So 
it's much slower than we thought. So we probably shouldn't look at this small, you know, subsection of time to kind of gauge whether or not people were better off. So uh, this class today, tomorrow, in, in, in my class in, in Berkeley, we will be reading a paper by Emma Griffin, one of my heroes. Uh, if, if you're out there listening for whatever reason, Professor Griffin, um, give me, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hang out one day. Emma Griffin is probably not hanging out, but she's written on pretty much everything that I'm interested in. Her first book was on popular culture in the 18th century. Uh, now she's working on the standard of living debate. Every single time I see a thing by Emma Griffin, it uh, anticipates a, 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 a topic that I have myself been interested in, and I'm, I'm, I'm enormously jealous. But Emma Griffin, we're reading this paper by Emma Griffin tomorrow, and she, instead of looking at statistical series for wage growth, asked a simpler question about people who worked in the Industrial Revolution. Were they hungry? It's really hard to make aggregate wage series. It's really hard to make uh, baskets of goods and look at relative prices. Uh, small changes in the relative prices of a particular good have really, really big effects in how you measure purchasing power. So she says, look, we, let's not do that. Let's just look at something really solid. Let's look at how much money, what proportion of our incomes people were spending on food over the Industrial Revolution. The big thing that she comes up with is this, is that it doesn't, you know, the Industrial Revolution did not happen in all places at all times absolutely instantly. Instead, the Industrial Revolution was deeply, deeply different in rural and urban areas amongst agricultural and non-agricultural labors. For agricultural labors, you know, from the prospect of hunger, things were equally crummy before the Industrial Revolution afterwards. Um, people spent most of their money uh, who were agricultural laborers on food, and most of that went towards bread. This suggests that they didn't have a lot of money to spare. If you're very poor, you spend the first bunch of your money on the highly caloric foods that allow yourself to keep on going, to keep on working. And so the fact that agricultural laborers in both 1790 and like 1840 usually spent the majority of their wages on bread suggests that they were pretty poor. But this in itself is amazing because consider that the efficiency of British farming over this period was exploding. As Britain was getting increasingly urbanized, as a greater proportion of the country was living in cities, a smaller proportion were making the food. That meant that this smaller proportion of the country were making more and more and more food and getting paid pretty much the same amount. The picture changes when we look at people who worked in manufacturing and mining, those sectors of the economy that were the most deeply changed by the Industrial Revolution. These people, when you look at their diets, were able to afford to spend less of a proportion of their income on food, and more of that income was spent on things other than bread. Now, when you look at an agricultural laborer, you know, they buy bread and maybe a little bit of bacon and maybe a little bit of cheese, and that's about it. 
But the incomes the, the, of, of the manufacturing people were actually far more varied. They spent more on luxury goods like tea and coffee. They spent more on greens. They spent more on different meats. They spent more on exotic groceries. This suggests that the people working in manufacturing actually were a little bit better off than people who were working in the farms. And this explains, in part, this weird thing about the 19th century, why, if factory work, if living in the city was so awful, did so many people flood to the cities in the 19th century to work in these awful factories? This suggests they did so because they actually were materially better off. They had more to eat, they had fewer moments of starvation, they had uh, more stuff to buy, they were more free. It's, it's, it's one uh, tick in the box for the optimist camps. But Griffin doesn't just look at the share of people's budget, she also looks at autobiographies, she looks at writings of people, she looks at this as a cultural phenomenon as well, not just a social phenomenon. And there she finds something really interesting. In agriculture, people you know, got hungry. They got hungry for a wide variety of reasons, but it was usually because of bad harvests or, you know, a lack of work. But people, adults and children and women, got hungry. In manufacturing areas, adult males didn't get hungry. When they, you know, had a downturn in the labor market, they usually shifted from buying all the delicious meat and tea and stuff to eating more like rural people did and just spending their money on bread. And there turns out not to be that often when people, by and large, couldn't find work. When families had tough times, they just ate worse food. They didn't go hungry. But... There was a novel source of hunger for women and children. What did happen was that women and children did get hungry uh, uh, quite a bit, not because the wage earner lost their job, but more often because the wage earner was not participating in the family economy the way that he usually had. In agricultural labor and in traditional manufacturing labor, it seems that what happened was that uh, the male breadwinner would make the majority of the money for the family, and as soon as he got his wages, he would usually give it to the housewife, who would then go out and cook, uh, you know, buy all the food and cook it and clean. And sometimes the children will work for uh, getting a little bit of extra money, but mainly the person who was bringing home the bacon was the father. In these manufacturing families where women and children were going hungry, the father was not upholding his end of the bargain. Instead of coming home with the wages, he was going out to the pub and drinking the money away. And this was relatively common, and we hear the complaints from people who were alive at the time, complaining about factory workers who were going out and getting too drunk all the time instead of supporting their families. Emma Griffin suggests that this is an underappreciated cultural change of the Industrial Revolution, that because of the massive amount of cultural change that people went through, you know, moving from rural areas to urban areas, going from working on the farm with, you know, farm uh, 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 farm time with the rhythm of the agricultural season to going to work within 
the day-to-day clock time of the factory, that all of this built to a kind of cultural catastrophe that sometimes overwhelmed the traditional ways of maintaining a household. That the key driver, this is important, the key driver of misery during the Industrial Revolution was not the factory, according to Emma Griffin. The main driver of misery was the fact that people didn't know how to have families. They were broken culturally. There was something wrong in how people were arranging their affairs. And this is something to think about. It's, 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 it's a puzzle as we try to figure out where we stand today. You know, when we talk to people in the Bay Area, usually if they're boosters of what's happening today, if they're, if they're optimistic, they see the advances in computer technology as a new industrial revolution. And people often make comparisons to the Industrial Revolution. They say, look, just as the Industrial Revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries destroyed traditional ways of working and made people need to figure out how to work in new ways, so too will this Industrial Revolution also change the way that people work. And there's a critique that's embedded in that. People say, look, unless we change the way that we organize society, Just as in the 19th century there was massive misery, so too in the 21st century there is massive misery. Emma Griffin saying that there is a decent chunk of the misery of the Industrial Revolution that is the fault of cultural breakdown is suggestive of another way that the Industrial Revolution changes our lives. Because when we change the way that we work and we consume, we don't just change the world of work. We don't just change the factory or the office. We also change our homes. We change our everyday lives. And when this kind of massive change happens, sometimes people are at a loss. And I'm at a loss. I'm thinking of how to teach this tomorrow. The paper is deeply technical. Uh, I'm not sure that the students will have done the reading, and if they would have done the reading, how successfully they will have gotten it. I'm not even sure that I have a great moral of this story myself. I think when we look back on it, we're just left in some ways scratching our heads. What was it like? Was it better? And a lot of it really depends on what we think the standard of living should measure. When we think of of what the world should be, is it is it better that we work all the time, that we work all the time for other people, that we work for all the time, you know, all the time for other people while destroying the environment, but we get extra stuff? Is it, I mean, it sounds like a little bit of like a, a 3 a.m., you know, college stoner question, but it's real. It's a live question. Is it better to live today when we have penicillin and iPhones, but we have to work all the time? and often not for a lot? Or is it better to live without the penicillin and iPhones and have a you know, deeper connection with our work, to own it more, to have less inequality? I mean, I'm torn. I love the modern world. I think it's great. I'm a child of, of, of the 21st century. But I think that really, when we get down to it, the, the way that people get value isn't from things, it's from one another. It's from working in ways that give themselves pride. It's, it's from being in a community where you can compare your, your well-being to your neighbors and you can say, you know what, I'm doing okay. In the Industrial Revolution, you begin to have a massive shift in inequality. 
you get people first within one country and then all over the world having more massive amounts of inequality. And, and that, I think, is bad. I think it's in, inherently bad. Anyway, this has been Making of a Historian. Thank you very much for listening. Um, thank you, as always, goes to Duncan Barton uh, for drawing our art and to Jonathan Lear for doing our music. Thank you, everybody, for reaching out who listens to the program. I have to thank, again, my mother-in-law, Paula Saunders, who I hope is dutifully recommending all of her friends to listen to the podcast. Thanks as well to Jason Furlong, a listener who is uh, at right this very moment at episode 50, who uh, sent an email recommending a couple of board games about the Industrial Revolution. Um, I will definitely check them out. And hopefully you're still listening here in like episode like 113 or something. I, I hope you are, Jason. Thank you very much. Um, if you like the show, please tell your friends, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, or drop me a line at the Facebook page or at my institutional email. Uh, and I will speak to you all next week when we will be talking about the other end of this change. We were talking about production this episode. Next week, we will talk about global consumption and the natural world, where we will be focusing on the feather trade. Thanks for listening. 